This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Aloha, everybody. Thank you so much for watching the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I hope you'll subscribe. I hope you'll like any of these episodes that you enjoy. And I want to encourage you to please sign up for The Curtain Call, which is my weekly newsletter where we have thousands of subscribers already. I would love for you to sign up. And how to do that is in the liner notes below this video. Please enjoy this episode of the Wall Street Coach Podcast. It's a good one. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I am been so looking forward to this conversation today with Peter Atwater. He is the author of The Confidence Map, which is my new most favorite book out there. I did a video review for Peter's book on Amazon. That's how excited I am. Peter, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much, Kim. I'm I'm humbled by what you're saying about my book. Oh, Thank you. I'm so excited about it for, for all of our listeners, because I know how valuable it's already been for me and my own entrepreneurship. But I know having worked with traders and investors now for over 17 years, they're going to flip the heck out when they read this book, because you're speaking not only to their own challenges, but you're going, this wisdom is going to facilitate them being much more successful navigating all the twists and turns that the market goes through. Now, that, that is my hope, is that people find this not just a book that they leave on the shelf, but they find it useful in, in what they do. Absolutely. It's just such a clean and simple map that you give us, which we'll get into in a few minutes, and we'll share it with those who are watching. Some people listen to us, some people watch, but we'll walk you through regardless so you guys can see just how applicable what he, Peter's teaching us in this book is to our day-to-day -day life, never mind trading, never mind investing. So I want to just give everybody a little background about Peter. He is the president of Financial Insights, a researcher of confidence-driven decision-making. So listen to that, traders and investors, and really anybody who's in business, if you want to understand what drives decision-making and how to have it really be informed properly, you want to listen to what Peter has to say. He's also been an adjunct professor at William & Mary and the University of Delaware. This is a great story that just gives you a little sense of where Peter kind of comes from in his amazing journey. At 45 years old, his son said to him, Dad, you're halfway to 90. And three months later, he left his very successful career in financial services to do something different. And after helping several hedge funds successfully navigate the banking crisis, that something turned out to be studying confidence. And that's where we're going to talk about today. Peter also has another excellent book called Mood and Markets. Peter was, uh, this is my second time having Peter on my podcast. You were on it, it's almost a year and a half, two years ago, Peter. That was an incredible conversation when we talked about Mood and Markets. Michelle Bouger introduced us and, uh, but his new book, I want to just talk about that now, is called The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos 
to clarity. Tell us, I've read it. I am going to read it a second time, if not a third. Tell us what this book is about and what informed you writing it in the first place. So confidence is one of those terms that we use, but we have no idea what it means. We tend to define it by what people look like, what I call confidence theater. You know, whether it's LeBron James or Beyonce or Elon Musk, we define it by the behaviors of other people. And we've never really stepped back to say, well, what is this thing really? And I've tried in a what I hope is a useful template to define it as a function of the certainty and control that we feel in our lives. That when I'm confident, I think things are predictable, that I have a good sense of what's coming. And I feel that I'm going to be prepared and capable of dealing with what is ahead. So I may have the tools and resources that I need to be successful. And when those two come together, that's what confidence is all about. I'm wondering, is it a good idea for us to have the map shown right now, maybe, and we'll walk people through it if they're only listening? Sure. Be happy to put it up. Okay, great. So this is the, the map that I created. I call it the, the confidence quadrant. And it's, it's a very simple image of four boxes, a two-by-two two box chart. And you have certainty on the lower x-axis and control on the y-axis. And I divide it into high, low certainty and control. So there are four possible combinations. In the upper right-hand corner is when we have both certainty and control. And I call that the comfort zone because it is comfortable for us. We're relaxed. We tend to be outgoing. Our brains are at ease. We're at ease. Time typically passes quickly. When I talk with athletes, that's what they define being in the zone. It's a very, very important place for us because we are often at our very best there. The opposite environment is what I call the stress center. That's where we have neither certainty nor control. And here we're naturally anxious. And we don't think about it in these terms, Kim Ann, but the opposite of being confident is feeling vulnerable. We feel things are uncertain and we're not entirely sure we know what to do, where there's a sense of powerlessness. And so the stress center is an environment where we feel we feel inherently vulnerable and sometimes intensely so. That lower left-hand corner, I think, is what defines traumatic events in our lives, where we feel incredibly powerless in an environment of intense uncertainty, whether you've been mugged or you know, fallen because you were skiing or, or COVID for many people, put them in that lower left-hand corner. So when we naturally think of confidence, those are the two boxes that we think about. But there are, interestingly, two other boxes. There's an environment where we have certainty but no control. I think of that as the passenger seat, whether you're in a taxi or in the back of an Uber or an in, on an airplane. And that's an inherently fragile environment because we feel good so long as the certainty of what we thought we ordered was good, but we get very anxious when that certainty goes away. Anybody who's been on a turbulent flight has lived that of and so we can often feel imprisoned in that lower right-hand box. The last box is the launch pad. This is where we have control but no certainty. 
And this I think of as a rock climber halfway up a cliff who has control, but it's to be determined whether they're going to land safely back in the comfort zone at the top of the hill or they're going to plunge to their death. And so this is the hero's journey. This is where we've taken control from the stress center, are headed to the comfort zone. It's also where we may be trying something new, where we move out of the comfort zone to learn a new sport or to, to try something we've never tried before. Interestingly, and I think relevant to your audience, is this is the environment where every financial decision is made. We have control whether we're borrowing money, lending money, or investing, but the outcome is to be determined. And investors get themselves really cross-legged because they typically think of themselves as either in the, in the comfort zone or the stress center. They don't realize that when you're making a decision, you're in the launch pad. And too often, our decisions are outcome-driven. And so we're imagining the future ahead. If it's in the comfort zone, we buy. If it's the stress center, we sell. And we need to be careful not to get seduced by those strong feelings because often we'll make the wrong investment decision at the wrong time as a result. Yeah. So many places I want to go. And just so you guys see, I have like so many pages of notes from his book because every page I was like, oh my God, this is such a nugget. So here is where I want to take us in this conversation, especially with where you just ended. Why not, would you be willing to walk us through what you talked about with regards to the five F's of panic and then the five F's of extreme confidence? Sure. So when we lack certainty and control, particularly intense, we naturally think of fight and flight. So those are two of the obvious responses, and they're highly impulsive and highly emotional. But there are three other highly impulsive and emotional behaviors as well. One is we just freeze up. You can almost think of our brain as getting clogged in traffic because that's in many ways what, what actually happens. And so we just we're incapable of moving forward. The fourth one is to follow somebody else. And this is one, this is actually our easiest response because we don't need skills. So we don't, you know, we don't need tools. We don't need to take the initiative ourselves. We can simply get behind somebody. And, and that's both good and bad because we have to be careful who we follow. And we need to remember that in that lower right, that lower left-hand box, that's the feeding ground for predators, for people who don't really have our best interests at heart. There are a lot of con men. Interestingly, in politics, you'll see a lot of authoritarian figures. And they never want us to get confidence back. Their, their ideal environment is put us in the passenger seat and keep us there. You know, the, the lower left-hand the lower right-hand box is a prison. And if you're an authoritarian figure, that's the ideal location that you want others. So we need to be careful. That's four of the five Fs. The last one, and apologize for this, is fuck it. And we are naturally nihilistic in the lower left-hand corner of the stress center. And often to our own disadvantage and frequently to the organizations that we work in. And so if I'm creating change or I'm experiencing dramatic change, I need to anticipate 
that every one of those five behaviors is likely to be experienced and exhibited by people around me. And God knows we saw that in, in real time with COVID in 2020. Yep. One of the things you talk about is when we are in the stress center, we are going to be coming from the place of me here now. Let's just talk a little bit about that so people can just get clear for themselves what that feels like. Because everybody knows that experience, but I want them to like tangibly have their arms wrapped around it. Yeah. So, so when we're in that lower left-hand corner, vulnerability is what we're experiencing. So think about, you know, the bear is outside of the tent, or if you hate roller coasters like I did, you're about to plummet to your death. And so the question is, who do you care about? And the answer simply is me. I care about no one else when I'm in that level of survival mode. I also care about here, not anywhere else. And temporarily, I care about now. And those all, they work together. I typically, if I have one, I have all three. So it's a common grouping of, of psychological distance that transcends everything I do. And so our choices in those moments, our preferences, are all driven by me here now thinking. And the good news is there's an intense level of focus that comes with that. But the bad news is I'm not thinking strategically. I'm being extraordinarily cautious. And so I'm making impulsive decisions without any consideration for the future. I mean, you, you saw this during COVID. You know, and policymakers are as guilty of this as we are. There was, there was no focus on the future because people didn't even know if there was going to be a future. Yeah. And so there, there are lots of unintended consequences that go along with me here now behavior, particularly when we all do it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You also talk in the book about how when we are in the state of the me here now, because we're not coming from a place of strategy, one of the things we really want to do is really prepare for the inevitability of that sort of paralyzation or panic. You talk about preparing for the challenge of that me here now so that it doesn't take us by surprise and that we have a tendency to feel as if failure and that experience of panic somehow go hand in hand when they don't. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I think of panic as an objective condition. Mm -hmm. And we interpret it as the worst is yet to come. When in fact, panic far more often is telling us that the worst is behind us. And so if you can look at panic, particularly group panic, and step back and say, oh, this is telling us that we're reaching a bottom that rather than being braced for the worst to come, we should be preparing for far better times ahead, that the, that panic is going to abate. And with that, confidence is going to naturally return to a, a higher level. So rather than selling out at the low, which is the natural panic response, we should be thinking about buying. And that's a that's a real gut test for people. But if you can just step back and say, oh, people are panicking. I need to get ready for things to get better. You can think more strategically and, and make a lot of money 
in navigating those turns. Yeah. Um, so that's the that's the way I I think of panic is it's God's cosmic joke and telling us the worst is behind you, not ahead of you. Yeah, it's so powerful. This is one of your quotes from the book. I just want to read because it's we view panic as failure, and what you speak to is that we need to plan for that and not see it as an admission of defeat. Speak yeah, and, about that. So we associate a lot of our migration into the lower left-hand corner, those panic moments, and we fill them with blame and shame as to how we got there. You know, if I've been mugged, I shouldn't have been out that night. I should have been across the street. I should, you know, we, we fill it with all these woulda, coulda, shouldas. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm here and I don't care how I got here. I need to be preparing for ways to get out. And this was one of the, the insights that I got from emergency room doctors. They really don't care how you arrived in the emergency room. They care about the fact that you're there and their job now is to get you out of there. And I think we would do ourselves a lot of service to stop obsessing about the past and the future and act like ER docs and just be in the present in those moments. Yeah, so powerful. You spoke about, you know, kind of doing a preparation of what and how you'll handle a crisis when it shows up. And part of that practice, you said, was to sort of perhaps you spoke to the stop, drop and roll that's taught to children. God forbid they ever, you know, catch on fire. And you said, you know, it has to be short and accessible to all of us when we're in the throes of that stress center. I'm curious if you would play along and help me see if we can't come up with one for traders. What could be a stop, drop, and roll? Maybe it's that phrase for traders when they are in the midst of that panic. Oh, I, I, you know, you could you could do staying alive. You know, the 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 speed at which we do CPR. It's being able to look at what would otherwise be a really disarming experience, and not even having to think about the response. So having a a catch or a catchphrase or a catch response to panic is, you know, I'm now just working with it, recognizing that this is that moment that I've been preparing for, and here's what I do about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we talked about the five F's of panic. Let's talk about the five F's of extreme confidence. Yeah, so I... I, I I'll see if I can name them all. It's been a long day. Okay, no so there's, there's frenzy because it's a highly energized. It's very futuristic. Our focus is not on the present. It's on what's ahead and the possibility that goes along with it. And there, I think it's important. The, the third one is fantasy, that we're, we really are fantasizing about the future. One of the things that a psychologist reminded me was that anytime we are considering the future, we're imagining. Then we're not forecasting, we're not planning, we're not, you know, he said, no, it's the future, we imagine it. And so think of yourself almost like a Disney cartoonist, you're imagining what this world looks like. Yes. And, and, and confidence is really high, it's very fantastical. You can almost imagine this cartoon-like environment that we're 
capturing in our brains. And so that's a, that's another critical aspect of being extremely confident. Yeah. You've got the other two written down, I'm sure. I do, actually. I have flashy, festive, and frenetic. Yep. So I've, I've talked about frenetic, but flashy. And, and this you see in fashion. You see it in people's behavior. It's all about being seen and glistening and, and looking good. And that's another telltale sign. And then the other is, to your point, is festive. It feels like a party. Yeah. And people are partying. And, and there's that sense of, of abundance, um, gluttony. I mean, we, there is all of that behavior. And again, something to remember. When confidence is high, yeah. there is a natural sense of abundance. When confidence is low, there's scarcity. And scarcity in what matters to us. So it could be power or wealth, you know, health. All of those are the, the, the experiences that put us in the lower left-hand corner. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. There was a couple of quotes that I, I wanted to speak to. You said, when confidence is low, time will kind of start to feel slower. Just talk a little bit about how that happens and when confidence is high, how fast time goes. Yeah, so distance gets distorted at time distance. It naturally slows down when we're lacking confidence and it speeds up when confidence is high, you know, time flies when we're having fun. We say that for a reason and time really drags. You see the same thing in relative perceptions of distance. So if you're a runner and your confidence is low, a mile is, feels completely different, far longer than a mile when you're in great shape and feeling good. There are lots of fun psychological studies where golfers see a bigger hole as players, uh, field goal kickers, see wider uprights. And, and so this, this psychological distortion plays a big factor into our willingness to take risk. Mm -hmm. Because I'm willing to take a lot more risk if I think the field goal posts are, are wider than they are. And so we need to be really careful not to fall victim to the, the psychological distance that we're experiencing because we're going to be naturally impatient when confidence is low yes. and and take too little risk and we're going to take too much risk when confidence is high. Yeah. I mean, it, ultimately, your book is truly helping all of us become much more self-aware and understand how we tip as humans. That's what's, you know, why I'm so excited about it, because that's my life work is, is trying to assist people at becoming more self-aware so they can, you know, make choices that make their lives better, their trading better, their investments better. But I feel like your book is helping all of us be able to be self-aware and then sort of have a ladder to hold on to in the midst of when things get really, you know, volatile. Yeah, I, I try and el eliminate all these associations with low confidence and weakness. To me, that that's a really poisonous pairing. And I, I'm a big believer that, hey, you're in the stress center. That That's just where you are. Yeah. And so rather than listening to all of those mean stories in our head or the stories that we associate with those experiences, to reframe it, to say, okay, what, what do I need to do to feel more certain now? What do I need to feel more in control? Because those are really actionable 
And there's been some really fun things with coaches that I've seen where, you know, the, a player will come off the field and rather than saying, hey, you, you don't look confident out there, the framing is, okay, what can you do to feel more in control? What can we do to help you feel more certain? Mm -hmm. And that completely energizes the conversation because it it allows the the person who's being coached to really think about what's what's the source of the powerlessness that they're experiencing? What's the source of the uncertainty? Yeah. And to then be very specific about a response. Yes. And it also sounds like an appreciative inquiry approach where you're focusing on solutions and not the challenge. Yeah. And again, how you got there doesn't matter. Yes. It's, you know, stop with the blame and shame. You're yep. there. Yep. And as a coach, I want to help you get get out of there as quickly as I can. Exactly. And I'd love too just that because I believe in coaching, obviously, I feel there's so many times when, you know, obviously there's certain therapists out there that approach it from a much more positive aspect. But that's part of why I gravitated towards coaching, having had therapy myself and having had coaching. I'd love that coaching put me in the driver's seat of my own experience. And then I can do that with, you know, my clients that I can say to them, like, you're the one who's going to come up with the solution here. And you are the one who's in the driver's seat. That to me is just so radically a different approach than what, you know, basic psychology sort of does with the therapist. So I'm just so glad you brought that up. I mean, what's your take on that? That's my perspective because of, you know, my views, but yeah, I mean, when, when people map themselves into the passenger seat, the conversation quickly turns to what put them there. Mm. And instead of, so why are you staying there? You know, what do you, you know, we can blame who put you there all day long, but short of physical imprisonment, it's your choice to remain. Now, admittedly, getting out is not as easy for some as for others. I mean, yep. and, and I, incredibly sympathetic to those that are there for lots of reasons that, you know, create enormous hardship to getting out. But I think we forget so often that there is a choice to get out and then to think about what are the steps that I need to take to prepare to leave. Yeah. And this is particularly difficult because it means swapping certainty for control and control for certainty. So there's a, there's a, a switch that um, we often don't feel prepared and equipped to take on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, we're going to take this over to Twitter space probably now where we have at least uh, 90 people there waiting for us. So we're going to close this down. But I have 17 other questions. If we can't get through them all in Twitter space, we might have to have another podcast number two, Peter, because this book, again, everybody watching, you have to read this book. Doesn't matter what your business is. I know investors and traders are going to flip out when they read it, but truly anybody who's in business is going to be completely enriched by it. Aloha, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to this Twitter space with Peter Outwater. I'm so excited to host this today. I'm a huge fan of Peter's and I've enjoyed his first book, Mood and Markets, but I'm especially impressed with his newest book, The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. My name is Kim Ann Curtin. 
I am committed to helping those who seek high performance create a conscious path to the future they are worthy of by installing my five practices into their daily life. If you like what I have to say here or these kind of topics, I hope you'll join Curtain Call. That's a play of my last name. We have a newsletter and you can sign up at my Twitter handle. Peter comes from, he's president of his own firm called Financial Insights, and he is a researcher of confidence-driven decision-making. He's also an adjunct professor at William and Mary and University of Delaware. His newest book, The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity, is an absolutely game-changing book. If you're an investor or a trader, it's a must-read. But if you're a business person, it's a must-read. I've learned so much, not just about how to navigate confidence in myself, but also just as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, it's given me such great food for thought, even on how I market what we offer here at the Wall Street Coach. So Peter, thank you for coming to this Twitter space. I'm so excited to have you here for all of these listeners. Thanks so much, Kim Ann. I'm delighted oh, to be here. So, so glad. One of the things we just did, we just, you know, did do part one of this podcast. Usually when I do a Twitter space, it's two parts. So I do a video Zoom call and that will be weaved together with this Twitter space and we'll drop it on the Wall Street Coach podcast in about two weeks if you guys want to look for it. What we're going to really talk about today is for you guys to better understand what is so important about this confidence map that is the title of Peter's book. So Peter, I'm going to just have you kind of recap what the confidence map actually is and what inspired you to write this book in the first place. So Kim Ann, before we do that, I just want to make sure folks are being let in and there's you, you've got the participants along Yeah, the they will come in as they see this live. And if you guys like the conversation and are comfortable sharing it on your Twitter handles, please do. Okay. So I've been teaching a class on confidence for a long time. And what I discovered early on is confidence is a word we use that we have no idea what we mean when we use it. And so what happens is we typically associated with other people and the behavior that they exhibit. You know, people talk about LeBron James and Beyonce and Elon Musk and all of these folks that look confident, but it's not something that we quite know what it means in terms of our own behavior. And so I try to strip out the confidence theater, as I call it, to really what's, what are the behaviors that are driving the decisions that we make and what is confidence when we talk about it? And there it becomes really about two specific elements. It's about our feelings of certainty. Do things feel predictable to us? Do I think I know what's coming? And then the other is, am I prepared for what it is that I imagine is ahead? And so do I have the tools, the training, the preparation, the rehearsal, whatever it is that I need so that I can feel confident in that future that I imagine? And we need both of them to feel confident. That one without the other is incredibly fragile. And those environments, as I write in the book, can change quickly from one to the other. So I talk about when we have certainty and control, we're in the comfort zone, we're relaxed, things feel easy, we're kind typically, our brains are relaxed, which is a really important part of confidence. We're more social, outgoing. 
And then when we lack confidence, I don't like that term because it's not really useful or accurate. The opposite of confident is vulnerable. And so when we lack confidence, what we're really admitting is we somehow feel vulnerable. Somehow I feel less certain. Some things don't feel, I don't feel prepared. And so there's a level of powerlessness and uncertainty that go along with lows in confidence. And I call that being in the stress center. It's where we're naturally anxious. And there are both physiological and psychological changes, cognitive changes that go along with, with feeling vulnerable. Thank you so much. There's a quote in your book where it says, our feelings have confidence and vulnerability may be two sides of the same coin, but they don't have the same weight. Vulnerability feels heavier. Confidence feels lighter. Let's just talk a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. So, so vulnerability weighs more on us than certainty and than confidence. And you see this in a lot of studies where they talk about the pain of loss being greater than the thrill of gain. And I think that's, that speaks to this difference in weighting. And so the intensity of vulnerability as it grows leads us to behave in dramatic, often highly impulsive, highly emotional acts of decision-making. And, and anybody who's watched the markets can see this when you have these market panics like we did this past spring with the banks and certainly during COVID. And so there's an intense need for us to do something in response to vulnerability that doesn't really exist with high degrees of confidence until you get really way out there. And then you have the FOMO behavior, but it's not nearly as intense in terms of the energy that, that it drives us to respond. You speak to how all of us, especially traders and investors, need to start to practice a vulnerability first mindset. Tell us what that means. Yeah. So if I think about our response, particularly leaders' response to crises, the focus is always on the problem, the thing that burned, crashed, you know, it, what it was specifically that went wrong. And I think what distinguishes a problem from a crisis is the intensity of the feelings that accompany it. And so a crisis creates enormous feelings of vulnerability. And when you solve a problem, particularly in the business world today, leaders often leave the vulnerability still exposed. I, I think the patient is still on the table even though the business leader thinks, oh, we solved the problem. The well was capped. The fire was put out. And they fail to appreciate that the vulnerability lingers. And I, I say the difference, you know, when I talk to doctors, the difference between curing a patient and healing a patient is that one solves, the first solves the problem. Healing involves the restoration of confidence. And so we need to be focused on both solving the problem and healing the patient eliminating the vulnerability. And companies generally are really bad at that these days. You give an example of how there were a couple of plane crashes and then the, you know, I can't recall was who it was, Lockheed Martin or someone else, but you said that the, after those crashes that the greatest need wasn't repairing the plane, but in restoring trust among those who were 
using their plane. Yeah, when I look back at the Boeing crashes, the Max Series 737s, you know, the first response of Boeing to the crash, the initial crash, was it's pilot error. The second response was it's a mechanical problem. And there was never an appreciation for the vulnerability. And I, and I say that because it was policymakers who grounded the planes, not Boeing itself. And a vulnerability first response would have said, we need to ground the, ground the planes. I mean, what made the response on 9-11 so powerful was the decision to eliminate vulnerability by grounding all the planes. They didn't leave three or four up there. They, they was like, no, get them all on the ground. And that intense vulnerability first mindset puts a floor on how people feel. And you'll, you will not restore confidence until you begin to focus on the restoration of confidence and the elimination of vulnerability. We're talking to Peter Atwater here. He is the president of Financial Insights, and he is also the author of The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. If you're a trader, you're an investor, if you care about the markets at all, you need to read this book. I have been absolutely gobsmacked at how extraordinary it is. I have not taken this many notes in a book that I have read or underlined more in a book in a very long time. Can't say enough about it. If you guys have any questions, please raise your hand. I'd love to make this more interactive. So please, if you do have a question, just let me know. If you're enjoying this conversation, we'd love it if you would tweet it out there among your followers to bring them in. My name is Kim Ann Curtin. This is a part two of a podcast episode that I'll drop in two weeks on the Wall Street Coach podcast. We're talking right now with Peter just about what does happen. And I'm curious, Peter, if we can take that story we just talked about and apply it to anybody who's listening here who is a trader or an investor and they find themselves perhaps in a vulnerable situation, how would you advise them to go about coming from this vulnerability first mindset for their own trading account, for their own experience of being in the stress center? Yeah. So the first thing is a lesson that I got from emergency room doctors, which is to spend no energy on how you got there. I interestingly, ER docs really don't care how you fell or what happened. They care about your condition now. And so an important element is to stay focused in the present. Don't worry about the future. Don't focus and obsess about the past. Leave the blame and shame behind. You're now in the stress center. And here, I think the advice that coaches often ask when they're applying these concepts is to stop worrying about lack of confidence and instead begin to ask, what are specific small steps you can do to regain certainty, to regain a sense of control and keep them small, keep them quite tangible, immediate, that will give you a clear sense that you're not as powerless as you think, that things are not as uncertain as they feel. And so small deliberate steps begin to create a pathway to getting back to the comfort zone. And they're, they're, you need to be really careful. You know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That impulsive, you know, take everything to cash, knee-jerk response 
is very often the kind of capitulatory action that happens at the lows. And so we are naturally too risk averse at the bottom, and we are inherently underconfident. And I think underconfidence is the condition that needs to get more attention today. Because when I look at a lot of decision-making, it's being made on a basis of fear rather than opportunity. And I think that many individuals need to step back to say, what is the outcome that I'm imagining? And is that really a realistic outcome? Is this as probable an experience as I'm making it out to be? And one of the things I notice is that there's a lot of weight today being given to very extreme but very low probability events. And so we need to be much more cheerful. You know, on, a, on, a, on an airplane ride, when turbulence hits, people are woefully underconfident. The odds of a plane crashing are really insignificant. I mean, they're, and yet in that moment, we woefully overestimate the likelihood. You know, people who've never prayed before are clasping their hands. And I see the same kind of dramatic behavior on the part of individuals when they're in the stress center for financial reasons. And, and financial vulnerability is a really debilitating condition. That sense of financial scarcity really eats at us. I'm just curious, because you're seeing so much of it, I almost can't help but ask, is that because of this kind of, you know, is it leads clickbaity culture we're all living in that the you know, the social media and or the papers that of the media is constantly putting these like really worst case scenarios that put us into the stress center, like your map speaks about, forcing us to be even more nihilistic than we even probably need to be. I'm a big believer that the media, you know, competent media is masterful at mirroring our feelings with stories that they know will resonate with us. And nowhere is that truer today than on social media, the algorithmic promoted stories, the, and even mainstream media. They know the confidence level of their audience and are going to deliver it back to us as much as we are willing to consume it. And I think we need to be very cognizant of what are the stories that we're eagerly consuming? And what are those stories saying about me? Because our stories, feelings, and actions exist in equilibrium. And so the story that I am telling myself or I'm eagerly taking in is much more a reflection of how I feel than necessarily what is true or factual. And we, we like things that feel truthy much more than we realized. Oh my God, that is so powerful, especially for traders and investors, because they can get so absolutely attached. And, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it becomes their whole identity, even letting go of a position that clearly, or a strategy that's clearly not working. It's like their whole identity is caught up in it. So just talk about, like, how can they pause and catch this about themselves. That's truthy. That is such a great word. We like what's truthy. It's just so screwed up, but it's so powerful. 
Yeah, so I always say to the degree that you are certain of an outcome, either intensely positive or intensely negative, is a function of your imagination. And that is entirely your mood talking, not the real odds of the future. I got hit backside the head by a psychologist when I was talking about you know, the future, our perception of it, or our prediction of it. And he said, Peter, our future is imagined. And he said, you need to realize that we are going to be imagining fantasy, both good and bad at extremes. And so we need to be careful not to get seduced by our own fantasy, because it's reflecting how we feel, not the real odds of the future. Yeah, and it's that plane crash scenario that I'm over-dramatized. And we catastrophize outcomes when our confidence is low, and we almost glorify them. There, there's a grandizing of outcomes when confidence is high. And those, those imaginations are on us, not the future. Future is always been uncertain, always will be. And you know, we're the ones whose stories are changing based on how we feel. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about two things you introduced to us in the book. We talk about, you talk about the impacts of horizon preference and psychological distance distortion. Please explain both of those to those who are listening. Again, if you guys have questions, just raise your hands and I'll take them. Yeah, so, so I believe that we are equipped with variable lens goggles that we don't realize we wear. And so when the bear is outside of our tent, when we're feeling very vulnerable and we're in that lower left-hand corner of the stress center, our world is driven by three things, me here now, nothing else matters. And we inherently focus on the problem at hand intensely. We eliminate anything else because it really doesn't matter to our survivability. What we don't realize is that applies to all situations where we feel stressful, that my me here now preferences are going to determine the actions that I take. We see them in food, you know, the kinds of things we eat when confidence is low is dreadful for the future. And we are naturally antisocial. We're more xenophobic when confidence is low. We are, we turn inward, you know, we won't get out of the house. And that kind of behavior is self debilitating. It's, it's a really vicious cycle that we can put ourselves into. And again, we need to recognize that's a natural accompaniment to low confidence, whether we want it or not. And when you can look at your own behavior and say, oh, I'm in me here now mode, that's a nice way to do a gut check of your own level of confidence and to realize that you're likely to be taking much less risk than you should. You're not thinking strategically. You're thinking either impulsively, maybe a little bit tactically, but it's, but your all of your response system is going to be in me here now mode. And you're not thinking of the unintended consequences of the choices that you're making. Thank you. Before we go on to the next description, we're going to take a question from three aces. The mic is yours. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kim. Peter, huge fan, huge fan, huge fan. 
know, I've been studying Buddhism for practicing Buddhism for several decades now. And I'm just curious in your calculus and analysis, is there a distinction between internal and external locus of control? Thank you in advance. Yeah. So there's a lot of confidence that gets talked about in terms of self-confidence and self-esteem. And that's not what I'm focused on in this book. This is really about our relationship with the outside world. Now, admittedly, to your point, there's a clear relationship of if I feel good about myself, I'm likely to feel more prepared. I think that in some ways, the Buddhist mindset is very helpful in terms of recognizing that things, that change is, and to realize that I am going to be moving around this quadrant of feelings of certainty and control all the time. A plane ride is going to move us around. My, my day is going to move me around. And not to get wedded on being in one place all the time, because I, I think that's a disservice to ourselves. You know, it's always going to suffer. It's always going to be amazing. No, life is going to move us around. And I think resilience comes from a place of strength where you accept that you're going to be moving around these environments of certainty and control, and that you believe that at the end of the day, I have the tools and the mindset to be able to get back no matter where I land. And I, and I think we need to encourage, particularly young people, stop worrying about being confident. Get better at being resilient. Realize that confidence is going to come and go, and the best thing you can do is to be prepared for those moments when you're going to feel powerless and uncertain. And how can you, what kinds of things can you do to make that a natural experience? My students laugh. I always tell them, take an improv class because you're going to find yourself dealing with uncertainty and powerlessness in the first five minutes. And it's going to give you some skills that you can use to, to navigate those sorts of environments. When I was being trained as a coach, Peter, that was one of the first assignments they gave us was to go to improv class because they wanted us to learn the art of yes. And they said, that is what's going to constantly be facilitating what people say in a coaching conversation. Learn how to say yes and. It was so powerful. So I'm so glad that you encouraged your students to go to improv. What do you think helps people become more in the headspace of resilience? What are the things you would advocate those who are listening? Like, oh, that makes sense. I want to become more resilient. What would you point them towards? So a couple of things. I would say stop spending all of your energy trying to prevent crises. Because in doing so, you're now going to associate a crisis with failure and weakness, as opposed to it's a natural event that's going to happen in your life. You are going to experience repeated moments of powerlessness and uncertainty. And if you look at all of them as weakness and things you need to blame either on yourself or others, you're not going to be ready to deal with them. I think that emergency room docs, first responders, that they're in the business of being in that stress center and getting themselves out. So what do they have? They have a mindset of stop caring about how you got there, put all of your energy into getting out. 
and again, taking deliberate steps to regain certainty and regain control. To appreciate that you are going to be there and your job, particularly as a leader, is being skillful at getting others out of there. And here, Hollywood is a terrible guide in terms of the skills that you need. You know, if we think about what makes leaders successful in a crisis, it's authenticity, it's empathy, it's creativity, it's realism. It's things that we don't naturally associate with the classic leader styles that we celebrate uh, folks that, in, that are in the comfort zone. You know, the crisis leader is not the over-harvester that we celebrate in all the business books. And so you need skills and you need to prepare for them. You know, do things that force you into the stress center and get comfortable that you can find your way out with low-risk outcomes. So powerful. If you guys are enjoying this conversation, please share it with your Twitter followers. My name is Kim Ann Curtin. I'm committed to helping those who seek high performance create really a conscious path for their future. The Wall Street Coach podcast, this will drop. It's a two-part episode. We just interviewed Peter on camera where he walks us through the confidence map. So you'll see this whole thing drop in about two weeks. Peter, what do you hope but when you wrote this book in the first place, what was it that you hope people will walk away with after they read it for themselves in their own journey? I hope that people stop associating weakness with lacking confidence and can look at it objectively to say this is just an environment of, of low certainty and low control. I, I had a student who rushed into class one morning and she's like, Professor, I had a fight with my roommate. I overslept. I have a test. And then she started to smile and she said, I'm in the lower left-hand corner. I'm in the stress zone, but I know that when I take my test, I'm going to be out. And I think just being able to visualize where you are gives us a level of, of understanding of why we feel the way we do, the association between these different locations on the quadrant and how we think, what we want, what we do, the stories we tell, enables us to realize that there are natural patterns to our behavior and not to be afraid of them when they surface. You know, we tend to look at exogenous events as upending our level of confidence. And we don't realize that many of them are the results of a collapse in confidence of others. You know. Yes, 9-11 caused our confidence to fall, but if you step back, you can look at it and say, that was a group of individuals when confidence was very low, doing precisely what we should expect them to do. You talked about how when we are in the midst of a crisis, we need to be very careful about how we navigate who we listen to. And that we can sometimes be more kind of prone to listening to those who are not coming from having our best interests at heart. Just let's talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So the environment of low confidence is an environment of, sadly, predators. That is their natural feeding ground. They love nothing more than people who feel vulnerable. And they very often portray themselves as being able to get somebody who's vulnerable back to the comfort zone. And what we fail to realize is 
the predators have no real desire to get us back. Their ultimate goal is to move us from the stress center to the passenger seat where we have intense certainty, but we have, still have no control. And we see this with cult leaders. I talk about Harvey Weinstein in my book and the, his predatory behavior towards women. You can look at the pattern of behavior in organizations like the U.S. Olympics or in the Catholic Church. But these were individuals who were preying on people on their vulnerability. And when we're vulnerable, we're terrible at making a decision. I mean, think about if your pipe is burst, you open the phone book we're used to and just started dialing. And that's a behavior that we replicate elsewhere, where we don't look at the competence and the qualifications of those we follow. We just choose whoever's easiest. And particularly, you see, you know, this is why you see authoritarian leaders becoming so powerful and popular when confidence is low, because our follow response is our easiest response to low confidence. Fight requires that we believe that we have an element of control. Flight may require that we have the resources to leave. Follow is easy. We just get in line. And we need to recognize that's not always our best, our best option. Because of what you introduced to me in this book, and you call it confidence theater, would you agree that often we are tempted to follow leaders who just have the confidence theater game down? And today, never more so. I mean, social media has enabled confidence theater to proliferate. We are awash in individuals who are basically saying, follow me. It's in the investment world. It's in the political world. It's in so many realms of our lives. And you can hear this in their language. They so often reinforce that things are uncertain, that you have a good reason to be afraid. They're, again, telling us the story that resonates and is relevant and mirrors exactly their audience. Yeah, so incredible to just think about all of the different people all of us are listening to or following because they're so putting that confidence theater on so so professionally that we're like, well, they must know. They seem so confident. They seem to have it all together. They're telling us that, mate, I even want to say, and you tell me if this is true, they sort of sometimes led us to believe that we are just too stupid to see what we see and that they understand so much better than we do. Yeah, and sadly, we almost buy before they have to sell us. That we're wearing our vulnerability on our sleeve. Did we finish talking about horizon preference and the psychological distance distortion? So we talked about it in terms of low confidence, and that's the me here now. And then the other extreme, it's us everywhere forever. We're much more social, cooperative, connecting. We are focused on the future. We're strategic. We love to explore. We, you know, distance is an irrelevant fact. We, you know, we go to places that, and we expect to land on our feet no matter where we fly or even into space. And part of that is this distortion that goes on. You know, we talk about time flies when we're having fun. Well, distance flies, our social network flies. And so we really crave 
things that are highly abstract. And then when confidence falls, it's like our world slows down. Distances seem insurmountable. Time moves really slowly. You can almost see the, the speed dial being turned. We become much more careful about who we socialize with. Familiarity becomes the number one criteria for the people that we trust. And so our whole world shrinks when confidence is low. And I think, you know, in, in the decision-making world, decision-making moves from, you know, sort of global institutions back to local, almost grassroots organizations of people who know each other. If we're looking at this current, I'll say, interesting market, especially because of this book being on top of your previous book, which was called Mood and Markets, what is it that you feel perhaps you're seeing within the marketplace and how traders and investors are operating that maybe they're missing? What do you see that they may not be seeing right now? So. I see particularly those who have been enormously successful in the past several years, their confidence is to the moon. They, are, they have never felt better. And I think it's quite significant when you look at a company like LVMH, the Louis Vuitton, Maud Hennessy, that this luxury goods company is the most valuable company in all of Europe, more than Unilever and Mercedes and BP, you, you name it. In fact, Four of the 10 most significant companies by market cap in Europe today are French luxury companies. And that says to me that those at the extreme high end feel immensely powerful, certain of, of what's ahead. And at the same time, I see a, a broader population where there's intense feelings of powerlessness and uncertainty. And you can even look at that in France itself with the riots and protests that we've seen recently. And so the contradiction between market confidence, investor confidence, and social mood more broadly is really striking to me. And, you know, admittedly, I you know, focus a lot of time on the K-shaped recovery, but it's, it to me has become really profound in its divide. And that I think only compounds the hopelessness of those at the bottom, that the ability to bridge from here to there is disappearing. And this is where, you know, things like nihilism become a natural response. So for traders and investors who are looking at this and hearing what you're saying here, how would you advise them to navigate this environment considering where everybody is at and that nihilism is in place? What would you say that they need to perhaps be how do they approach the market under these conditions? So I think we learned an important lesson in the spring that has been overlooked. And that is that the speed at which changes in mood can move faster and more widely than ever before. And if we look at what happened, whether it's, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or, you know, First Republic or the banks that failed, we saw the combination of social media, the media, and online trading tools come together 
to move massive amounts of money in moments. And I think that's an important thing for investors to keep in the back of their mind, that our ability to be highly emotional and impulsive today is like never before. And so I, I think whether you're a bull or a bear, size things recognizing that the market has a capacity to exaggerate price and volume flows in ways that you are not prepared for in both directions. And that you want to make sure that you're not standing naked. You may be absolutely right, but woefully out of sync with the crowd when the crowd turns. And the crowd dynamic today is going to drive outcomes like never before. You spoke about how we are being given information in our culture all the time of where the crowd stands. Would you just talk a little bit about that, which probably ties a bit back to Moose and Markets, your other amazing book. But just let's go there a little bit so that people listening who do want to read that market and or the crowd more successfully. Yeah, we have the ability today to look at stories like never before in terms of their volume. I'm a big user of, you know, Google search data because I believe that, you know, if we feel it, we search it. And so there's a really important connection between the stories we tell, the words we use, and the feelings that we have, you know, unprecedented, you know, sky, the use of our word unprecedented skyrocket is in 2020 as the markets were collapsing. And so we have an ability, even as amateur investors, to track mood in ways that should enable us to avoid falling victim to it, to realize that those stories that are most powerful are going to be shared most widely, searched most widely, and you want to avoid buying or selling at the extreme in mood. And, you know, you could look at high gas prices as a search last summer, and it was perfectly mirroring what was happening in, in the commodity space. And to realize that though that intense sentiment is something that you can track, not only with price, but with story. And I always think that when the stories get most extreme, sort of the folks that are telling it to get really strident about it, that's your warning sign that the story is likely to be exhausting. And to, again, prepare for the other side. When people are most certain and extrapolating that certainty, that's sort of God's way of telling us that sentiment is reaching an extreme. So many things to ask you. I'm curious if anybody has any other questions, just please raise your hand. Happy to bring you into this conversation. You have a quote in your book, The Confidence Map, which again, I can't speak highly enough about. Everybody, I hope you'll consider getting that book. It's just absolutely extraordinary. There's a quote you have here. Our world shrinks and expands based on our mood. Vulnerability forces a more narrow focus, while confidence allows for a broader, more expansive reach. Just having that you know, on a post-it in front of us all day long, I think could be game-changing. Talk about that just a little bit, if you would. 
Yeah. So one of the things when we are highly confident, we crave possibility. We embrace abstraction. And if we go back to early 2021, you could see this in enormous scale and size from NFTs to cryptocurrencies to EVs and space and SPACs. We were devouring abstraction like there was no tomorrow. And at the other extreme, we demand certainty. And so our investment decisions mirror our mood. If the crowd is you know, hoovering in cash, that's telling us that everybody wants certainty and control. You know, we put it in our mattress because it's, you know, we even think the banks are too far away. We feel powerless with them. And if you watch what's popular, it's giving you a clue as to where we are on the spectrum between absolute concrete decisions to fantasy and abstraction. And, you know, of late, we've been watching this wonderful fantasy mania in AI. And, you know, AI is going to be one of those things that demand exhausts in this round. And we start to look more negatively on it, it both in terms of its opportunity, its potential underbelly, and we'll see the narratives change with that. Again, the stories follow how we feel. So incredible. I have this big box. I have literally underlined and more notes on pages in your book, Peter, tonight I've had in a really long time. This beautiful quote here, to better appreciate why we act and feel the way we do in the comfort zone, we need to bust the myth that confidence is a function of how loudly we speak or whether we stand like Wonder Woman or Superman. At its core, confidence isn't so much an emotional or physical experience. It is a cognitive one. It is about what is happening in our head when we are confident our brain is relaxed. Let's just talk a little bit about getting ourselves to having cognitive ease. Yeah, so some of your listeners will be familiar with Daniel Kahneman's work with System 1 and System 2 thinking. And there's a natural association between those and our level of confidence. When confidence is low and we're feeling vulnerable and we have to do intense problem solving, we are using up all of the, the energy in our minds with system two thinking. How do I get out of it? At the other extreme, we're using system one thinking if we're using thinking at all. You know, our brains are naturally lazy. And if we don't have to think, if we're not worried about something, we are not going to think. And I always think of tipping points as reflecting a pivot in how we think. So if you've learned to ride a bicycle, that aha moment, that's your body and coming together to say, ah, we've now shifting from system one to system two. You can relax now. I've solved the problem. Conversely, the shift from system one back to system two, those are the oh shit moments in our lives. And so if you can start to associate those two tipping points, you begin to realize that our cognitive processing is moving with our mood. And when we're feeling invulnerable, we're not processing information cognitively at all. And this is one of the real paradoxes of high confidence in that we take the most risks in the biggest size 
while paying the least amount of attention. And so it's no wonder bad things arise from that. If you Let's can think of say that one more time because it's so powerful. Just repeat that for you. We take the most risk in the biggest size while paying the least amount of attention. And that's a universal. And we do it individually. We, we especially do it in crowds. And so if you can think about your decision-making process, how quickly did you make it? Are you making it faster with less scrutiny than you did in the past? That's your process telling you, whoa, I may be more confident than I should be. And at the other end, you know, if you're making painstaking decisions and you're still not sure what the outcome is, you know, the chances are you're being too risk averse. So we're, our cognitive processes get in our way of making good decisions at both extremes. You talk about how it's important for us to have fluency to describe our experiences of cognitive beings, but also what you're speaking to now. So a person who's he hearing about this, and it, let's actually just speak because we didn't get to show the map. So just describe, you know, the most basic sense of the map because people are just listening, what it is that they can use as that ruler for themselves to determine where they're coming from on that confidence spectrum. It's a relatively simple two-by-two two box chart, and there are four quadrants to it. And the x-axis is our sense of certainty. The y-axis is our sense of control. And you can think of the boxes as being high or low, certainty and control. The upper right box I call the comfort zone is where we have high certainty, high control. And again, it's feeling very relaxed. Our brains are at ease. We tend to be nicer, cooperative strategic, outwardly focused. There are lots of characteristics that go along with that. The opposing box, the lower left-hand box, is the stress center where we feel like we have neither certainty nor control. And that's where we feel powerless and uncertain and things, and we feel vulnerable. I think all traumatic events lead us into that lower left-hand corner, no matter their cause. We don't think of the other two boxes where we have certainty or control, but we spend a remarkably amount of, a remarkable amount of our time in those boxes. Lower right-hand box, I call the passenger seat. It's where we have certainty, but no control. It's the passenger seat of a cab or a roller coaster or, a, or an airplane. And that's a fragile environment because if the certainty that we're relying on, particularly the extreme certainty that we're relying on, fails to exist, suddenly chaos takes over. We feel very vulnerable. Interestingly, that lower right-hand box also describes a prison, which is why when there's turbulence, you feel trapped as well. The last box is the upper left-hand box, and that's the launch pad. That's where we have control but no certainty. And this is where you can think of a rock climber halfway up a hill where they've, the outcome is to be determined. Will they make it safely back to the top, or will they fall and perish, you know, to their death? And if you think of mythology and the hero's journey, it's the journey from the stress center through the launch pad back to the comfort zone. Marvel Comics has made billions of dollars making movies that show just that journey. And one of the things that investors fail to appreciate is 
all of our financial decisions are made in that upper left-hand box. We do not make financial decisions in the comfort zone nor the stress center. They just feel that way because that's the outcome we imagine. But every financial decision is, reflects control but no certainty. If I'm borrowing money, if I'm lending money, if I'm investing, I am making a decision and it's imagined outcome driven. So if I think I'm going to end up in the comfort zone, I'm going to make a buy decision because I think prices are going to rise. If I think I'm going to end up in the stress center, I'm going to sell because I don't want more pain inflicted on me. But we need to be really careful that when we associate high probabilities to those decisions, we're kidding ourselves. So powerful. So many more questions. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Peter asked me to get him off this on time. So stay true to that. We're probably going to do a part two with Peter, and I'll put it up on Twitter when we do that second conversation. This book is called The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity by Peter Outwater. It's an extraordinary book. I've been blown away by it. Can't say enough about it. Please make sure to follow Peter here on Twitter if you aren't already. And if you're interested in more topics like this, I hope you'll join my curtain call. It's an email where I send out provocative questions every week and you can sign up on my Twitter handle. This will be released as a full podcast in approximately two weeks. Peter and I got together, did a Zoom video call where he walks through the confidence map in the shared screen. So I hope you guys will look at that in two weeks and I hope you'll read Peter's book because it's extraordinary. Peter, thank you so much for your time and for everybody in this space and especially that question that came in. Thank you all so much for being here. Aloha for now. Thank you so much, Kim. And thank you to everybody who listened in. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.